Good day, my friends. This is Under Review, the tennis podcast from an insider's perspective. I'm Craig Shapiro, and on the show, I talk with the most interesting voices in the sport. We have got a great show for you today. As the hard courts heat up and the focus starts to shift to the U.S. Open, we thought we'd bring you an episode with a gentleman who won it in 1988. That year, he not only won the U.S. Open, but also the Australian and the French. Had it not been for the Swede killer, Miloslav Machir, in the quarters of Wimbledon that year, he might have held the elusive Grand Slam. Appearing out of the shadow of Bjorn Borg, Mats Vilander had a meteoric rise, winning his first French Open before he was old enough to drive. And over the next six years, Mats won seven majors, beating everyone from Vitas Gerolitis to Yvonne Lendl, Connors to Clerk, Becker to McEnroe. If that wasn't enough, he led Sweden to three Davis Cup titles. This Hall of Famer and world number one is going to tell us what makes Roger Federer the best player to ever strike a ball. Share the two crucial lessons he learned that took him from junior to champion. And explain how you get from Rome to Roland Garros in the middle of the night during an airline strike and without a driver's license. Interestingly enough, we met up with our first Swedish guest in the Hotel Viking during the Hall of Fame induction weekend. First of all, we're in the Dames. You don't say Thames here in Newport. You say Dames. We're in the Dames conference room at the Viking Hotel. How many times have you stayed in this hotel? I haven't, actually. Um, I came to Newport the first time when I was inducted in 2002. Came back a couple of years ago, but didn't stay in a hotel. I stayed, last time I came here, I stayed in a motorhome, campground outside. But in 2002, for the induction of the Hall of Fame, I can't remember. It's too long ago. The gentleman uh, you hear is former world number one, one of eight people, I believe, to have won Grand Slams on three different surfaces uh, is that right? That's right. And that's Mats Villander. My man, thank you for sitting with us. Pleasure. Um, you're our second world number one. We had Jim Courier, and now you. And you pre- and you preceded him as world number one. I mean, you 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 hit that number in 88. That's right. Yep, I hit it in 88. And um, for a very short time, I uh, was number one for 20 weeks officially, and I felt like number one for seven days. Really? Yeah. So when I was 11 years old, you won the French Open, right? You were in 1982. That's right. Then you're right. How, and you, you were 17? I was 17, yeah. Woo! Yeah. I mean, when I was 11 years old, somehow everybody in my neighborhood started buying Rossignols. They started buying that racket with the inverted throat. Yeah, it was a bit of a cult thing because it looked different, I guess. The idea was that the inverted throat made the eight strings in the middle of your racket the same length. And, and then they convinced me through science that that made the sweet spot bigger than on normal rackets. Uh, and um, I got it in my hand the year before and I thought I could hit shots the same way I was hitting it with, uh, with a smaller aluminum racket, also a Rossignol actually, and suddenly I could spin the ball. And that, getting that natural spin without having to do too much was like, wow, the ball doesn't go out. You want to see that spin firsthand and not only watch legends like Mots, but also get on the court with them. Get onto our Patreon page and sign up for the Invesco Series package. You can join a clinic with pros like Mots, Jim Courier, Michael Chang, Andy Roddick, and many others. 
Perhaps more importantly, you can join the Under Review family and help support what we do here at Under Review. Just go to patreon.com slash underreviewtennis. Aside from the Invesco series package, there are a ton of cool perks. And everyone who signs up will get access to our bonus material, like our interviews with Justin Kimmelstab from November and Yevgeny Kofelnikov from just a couple weeks ago. Again, it's patreon.com slash underreviewtennis. We sincerely appreciate it. Let's get back into our interview with Hall of Famer legend, Mats Vilander. This is our first set. We call it the Off the Court Report. What's, what, what are your days and weeks like? Yeah, so I work for Eurosport and I broadcast from all the four majors. Um, the day there looks something like I get there about 10 o'clock in the morning um, and then just literally talk tennis until the last point is played. And then I do a, a highlight show called uh, Game Shet and Mats together with a former Austrian uh, Female player Barbara Shett. Oh, Barbara Shett, game Shett and Mats. That's right. That's used a, to that's be clever. game Set and Mats, and then she came on board. That's and clever. We changed the name. So I do that for for what twelve hours a day for two weeks in a row at all the majors. Um, and you must make a fortune. You must make a, <laughs> make a fortune of knowledge. Uh, that's for sure. Um, and apart from that, I run a tennis club in Haley, Idaho, which is my hometown called Gravity Fitness and Tennis, three indoor courts, a little gym. We just opened uh, last fall. And uh, then I still come out and play some uh, ATP Champions Tour tournaments, just a couple, because I'm getting too old for that. And then a few exhibitions here and there. So that takes up about a month and a half. And My man, you don't look like, you look like you can still murder people. That's you, what it is. How do you stay though. in that kind of fitness, though? That's a big difference between looking like you can and then actually moving on a court. Yeah. So it's the foot speed or the... Speed around the court that, that uh, forces you kind of to not be able to play with the likes of Carlos Moya, uh, Tommy Haas is playing now, and they're well, what, 15 that, years younger, and that, that 15 years makes a huge difference in moving. That's well, the big joke is that Tommy takes it very serious. Well, I think we all take it pretty seriously because we have, uh, I don't think we really care about what people think that much anymore. We, what, I care what I think, and uh, you don't want to go out there and, and feel and feel inadequate or, um, I don't know, sometimes you feel slow and whatever, so. I'm saying you play hard. I play as hard as you can. You don't play to win, which people have uh, misunderstood with tennis players. We we play to win only because I don't want to practice the next day. I'd rather play a match. So, but we're all competitive. You want to play as good as you can. If you have a chance to win, great. And you have another thing where you bounce around in the motor home and you run these like incredible Clinics. Yeah, it's called uh, Villander on Wheels, and I do that with uh, another American tennis pro, Cameron Lickle. And uh, yeah, we've been doing it for, I think it's nine years now. And that's a cool thing. You roll in, and then you do an incredible high performance and also fun, interesting sort of hit and giggle, I guess you might say. Well, hit and giggle is no, not true. It's not a hit and giggle. Hit and giggle. No giggling. Nah, no giggling, really. I mean, hopefully people (laughs) have fun, but to me, hit and giggle is more when you kind of just hit hit around and there's not, not much structure, which is happens once in a while. But I like doing drills with people. Most, most people that come are sort of average would be my age, maybe a little younger, maybe like yourself. But they're into it. They love it. They, they love, love it. tennis. And they might, some of them might be slightly frustrated because they, they couldn't really break through to the, but we have really good players, great players. And then we have people that have just picked up the game 
a lot of women. Americans like, like instruction more than Europeans, we have found out over the years. Really? Big difference, yeah. That's Ameri interesting. Well, it goes along with the American dream, I think, that uh, you, you want to always improve. You want to improve your living standards. You want to improve. You have a, a certain career pathways. Europeans are a little more um, about culture and day-to-day uh, -day life. And I, I think we tend to stay in the same town the whole, your whole life. You go to school in the same town you grew up in, whereas Americans like to kind of move around and you kind of get scattered all over the country. And, and I only know that because I lived in America for a long time and my kids are uh, a little bit scattered around. Let's move into our second set. We call this the On The Court Report. Let's start with the women. Who has popped onto your radar in an interesting way? You know, I'm obviously the parody is the many different winners and, 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 yeah. and such. such. Um, is there anyone that you are more impressed with than others? Is there anyone you're less impressed with than others? I think that hardcore season on the, on the women's side opens it up to um, way more players. I think you, if you play on a clay court or a grass court, I think you need, you need a lot of experience. I think hardcore is what, I mean, it's sort of the... Um, middle of everything in terms of a surface. Um, it's, you get the true bounce, it's easier to move on. So ball strikers suddenly um, get involved to, to be able to win titles. So suddenly you bring in, whereas Wimbledon and the French, there's maybe 10, 15 women that you think about. And suddenly I think hardcore season, there's 30, 40 women, especially the young ones, like an Amanda Anisimova, uh, amazing uh, ball striker and uh, amazing ball striker. Yeah, unbelievable. She's an ball unbelievable ball striker. Yeah, there's a lot of the, the ladies, a lot of American ladies, but suddenly also you have the Sloane Stevens and Madison Keys and these guys who are they're great on hard courts and they can play on the other surfaces. But um, and then a lot of you know someone like Petra Kvitova, she's obviously a bit of a veteran. She could at any time win win hardcore tournaments, win the US Open. But to me, it's more, most probably more about what's gonna happen to Simona Halep and Serena Williams after Wimbledon. I've been surprised at the lack of results from Kasakina. I've been surprised that Naomi Osaka has gone straight down the tubes. I mean- Well, that's because she, she doesn't know how to play on clay and grass because she hasn't done it enough. Is that it's it? All about experience. Because a lot of them play, I mean, in, the, in all these tennis academies, um, most of them play mostly on hard courts, and you, these days you That's go it. there and you grow up on hard courts. So, which I, I think it's, I think it's most probably a good way to, to feel good about your game. I do think growing up on a clay court, you learn more about um, the game tactically and um, technically, but it's uh, it's more work mentally to play on a grass court or, or clay courts, I think, to keep kids interested. They kind of tend to start on hard courts these days. Is is Coco Golf the real thing, or did well, people they, just choke? <coughs> well, they choke because she's 15, that's for sure. Um, but that's going to happen. But that, I mean, that girl, Herzog, the, uh, in the second round, Polona Herzog shriveled. Yeah, I mean, it's Wimbledon, center court, 15-year-old uh, girl who you think we all thought Coco had kind of one game because at 15 you usually have one game only and you hit the ball either really well or you don't miss um, and it turns out that obviously she's an athlete not of 15 years old but she's most probably physically somebody uh, she's somebody who's 
1920 in the way she looks physically. So the 15-year-old physically, you can throw out the window because she's not. She's older than that. Um, mentally, she's unafraid because she's 15. So there's the, heading into the unknown for a 15-year-old or me at 17. I'm not worried about playing on center court. She's not. She doesn't care if it's two people or 15,000 because uh, she doesn't know the consequences. So those are all explainable. The, the thing that that's, I think struck all of us is that she played against Paulona Herzog, who was slicing the backhand all the time, taking pace off the, of the ball. Grass court, it's the first time Coco Goff has played a few weeks in a row in a grass court. She, learned, she knew how to slice. She sliced backhands. She started slicing forehands to Herzog because that's what Herzog was doing. And Coco figured out that no pace is what Herzog doesn't like. Okay, it was six three five two before she kind of fell into that problem-solving mode, and then she did it, and then she kept doing it. And so I think that's what's so impressive is that her tennis IQ is way beyond fifteen years. But but hey, she's only fifteen years old in in her. Um, in I'll tell her you mental. what, coming from you, that's an incredible uh, compliment. And you know, we actually talked with Jimmy Arias uh, shortly after the men's final. He said that it's shocking that Joker, Rafa, and Federer are like still lapping the field. Well, that's tennis knowledge mainly to me, tennis IQ. They're physically unbelievably strong, fit, quick, have great anticipation, but in the end, it's, it's tennis knowledge of win, how to win matches when you're not playing at your best, which is, now that we mentioned Coco Goff, is what she did. And that's the sign of a great champion. That's a that, sign of a great champion. Yeah, because you don't have your worst level is still really high because the game is basic, basically um, made up of playing the right way tactically. And uh, then it's, I mean, you obviously have to have good technique on and on and on, but it's tactically that uh, separates the great players from the ones that don't make it. You said not that long ago that Rogers paying for dominating through the early stages of the 2000s because he's shrinking in the important moments of the match. He's not playing tactically correct. Can you explain that a little? Well, first of all, Roger Federer is the greatest tennis player on the men's side that's ever lived. That's, that's 100% for sure. And that's not because of the 20 majors that he's won. Uh, that's so he is because of that too. But it's because he's so consistently getting to the quarters and semis of slams on all the four surfaces, and he beats every opponent pretty much. But um, he would never get to a Wimbledon final at nearly 38 years old unless he plays a little bit of crazy tennis, which to me is... Um, it's Hyper-aggressive tennis. It's consistently unpredictable. Uh, and, and he's even said that himself, that he's become consistently unpredictable, meaning he doesn't really know if he's going to slice the return, step in, take the backhand early and block it or spin it or run around and hit a forehand, or is he going to come in? Is he going to hit a drop shot on the second serve return? So it's not really logical to somebody um, like me because I don't have the, the, the technical skills that Roger Federer has and never had the confidence that he has. So, um, so because he plays like that, he's still winning and beating and could have, should have won Wimbledon this year. So for that reason, he had a couple of match points. But if you go down and look at uh, what he did when he was winning everything against the likes of Leighton Hewitt, Andy Roddick, uh, Marat Safin, David Nalbandian, they were all great players, obviously, but Marat Safin won two majors and Leighton Hewitt won two majors. Uh, Juan Carlos Ferrero is one of the other guys. He won a French. 
So he wasn't really, so Federer was beating these guys and some matches were tough, but he was winning pretty handily, easily. He won five Wimbledons in a row until Nadal kind of showed up and then suddenly he beat Nadal in two finals in 06 and 07, then he lost in 08. So he won them without having to play too many big points. And even around the tour, he didn't have to, he, he never really got to play matches where it was five all, 30, 40 break point down in the third it's interesting, set. It's an interesting observation. Forgot how dominant he was. Well, so, yeah. And he was blowing guys out of the water, so he wasn't playing tight. Well, well, but he blew guys out of the water because he was physically and technically and naturally more talented than them and most probably had a, more of a passion and drive for winning, okay? So he played tactically correct from the first point through the whole match. But in a tennis match, you play, it's different stages. So the first six games of it for the first set, you play a certain way. And then suddenly you get to, let's say, 40, 15 match points at Wimbledon, and you're winning, and um, he's won, what? He won more points than Djokovic. He won 14 more points than Djokovic. So suddenly you have to, I think, normal players, or people like Novak Djokovic, Rafa Nadal, or Leighton Hewitt, who had to fight for everything, I think at 40, 15, they would, most probably would have said that, listen, I'm beating you. I'm gonna make this first serve to your weakness, which would be Djokovic's weakness, which is the forehand, and Djokovic would most probably chip it back in play and would have given Roger a chance to do something uh, and, or make Djokovic beat him. But he was beating Djokovic, so he tried to beat him with, a, with an ace down the middle, and I know it hit the tape, and it could have gone in, and if it goes in, it's an ace. We've seen the videotapes after, so then he would have been this superhuman. Well, then it's the greatest. The greatest ever. But at some point, I think that he might be, the reasons why he got to match point sometimes comes back to bite him because he's feeling so good, so confident. Of course, I'm going to ace again. And he didn't. And then he hit a second serve. And we know what happened from that point. And missed well, the forehand he, wide. He missed, uh, he, he didn't move his feet. Exactly. And he hit a bad forehand from the center of the court. That should have been a rally forehand, I think and he floated it wide, and then the second, he undercooked and that a, approach shot. To the, to the forehand of Djokovic, now when the, when the point's in play, Novak Djokovic's forehand is not a weakness. In the return, it's maybe a weaker side than the backhand. But Federer came into the net, which I like, because now he's asking Djokovic, beat me. Hit a tap passing shot past me, but the approach just wasn't good enough. So you can always go back and say these things, but. Joke, uh, Roger Federer, so he's really superhuman because he's competing with a generation he shouldn't be competing with. So the reason he can is because he's a genius tactically, he's a genius physically, but at, this, at some point you have to go back and say, okay, why did he lose this match when he won more points than Novak Djokovic, 14 more points out of 218 for Federer, 204 for Djokovic, and then he also lost the three tiebreakers. Okay, he won the other two sets easy and he lost the three tiebreakers. And that was 21 points for Djokovic in total, 7-7-7. Seven, seven, seven. And Federer, I think, won 11. So suddenly Djokovic in the most important points part of the match wins twice as many points as Federer. So you can say it's bad luck. Of course it is bad luck, mainly bad luck. But if I was Federer's coach and Roger himself, they're going to go, why did I lose this match? To me, that's because he hasn't gotten enough practice playing big points against 
players that are at his level, which is Nadal, Djokovic, not necessarily Leighton Hewitt, Andy Roddick, and Marat Safin from his generation. That's it. Quickly, who dominates the hard courts? Who wins the U.S. Open? Joker. Well, I mean, after after Roger Federer plays the way he played at Wimbledon, there is no reason why he doesn't feel like he can he can win the U.S. Open. I would have said before Wimbledon, I think the Wimbledon is the only chance he has. Maybe the Australian Open because it's a very quick court, but after seeing him play at Wimbledon, that's and we mustn't forget the French Open semifinals too. I mean, he can play on the slowest surfaces in the world. He can play on the lowest bouncing surfaces in the world. So yes, he can win the U.S. Open. Obviously, Novak and Rafa Nadal are most probably bigger favorites because it's it's quite physical. Rafa's not getting through hard court seasons. Well, he's getting through to the U.S. Open, and whether he wins anything before. But you put Nadal on a five-set situation on any court, you basically have to be called either Novak or Roger to beat him. So if he comes in healthy. Then Nadal is uh, up there. Novak one, Nadal two, Federer three. Let's move into our third set. This is the part of our show where we talk about your career. So when you close your eyes and you think back to '82, what comes into your mind, and how did that even happen? Like, were you a top junior in the world? I was, yeah. I knew that I was number one in Europe in the sort of under 14 up to under 16. I also heard that there was an American kid my age, actually born the same month as me in Jimmy Arias, and uh, came to America to play the Orange Bowl um, in 1979 in down in Florida. And... Um, and Jimmy didn't play in our group, so I'd never. And then I saw Jimmy play in Port Washington week after, and he still played in the 18 and under, and I played in the 16 and under. So, For our listeners, the Port Washington had a tournament. It was the Rolex, and that was a big indoor tournament at the Port Washington Tennis in That's sort of like at the edge of Queens and Long Island. Yeah, exactly. And I saw him play there, and uh, he was so good, I thought. Um, so I... I don't think I played him before I won the French Open at 17. I didn't play him in the junior French the year before. So it was hard to say if I was number one in the world. But, I, yeah, I thought I was one of the best juniors when I was trying to win the 82 French Open for men. And I understand you were top junior, but the men's game is different. What was your ranking? Um, so I was about 27 in the world going into the Italian Open the weekend before. I lost in the semifinals to Andres Gomez. Uh, on Saturday. French Open starts that next Monday in those days. And uh, there was an airline strike. Alitalia was on strike, uh, which they were a lot in those yeah, days. Yeah, per usual, I was yeah, going to say. Yeah, very unusual. So I went into the match, and I was thinking, okay, if I, if I get to the finals, we're going to have to drive to Paris on Sunday night. And I didn't have a driver's license because I'm 17. So my coach would have to drive, and that's most probably 15 to 20-hour drive. That would have been a, a problem. So we started playing. And um, I won the first set against Gomez, I can't remember, 6-3 maybe, and I thought he was tanking. That's the way Andres Gomez, a great Ecuadorian player, won the French Open in 1990. I thought he was tanking and thinking, and I thought, well, hold on a second. He's tanking to get to Paris. I guess, that's what I thought. (laughs) I thought thinking in the changeover after the first set, and then suddenly, before I know it, he wins the second, he wins the third, and I was like, oh, okay, that's how he plays. 
So I learned the lesson. This is not the juniors. These are the, this is the men's game. And they're going to do anything they can to beat you, period, because they're making a living here. But hang on. You worked your way to 27. You were 16 years old, and you started 17. playing. 17. But you, but, but, you, but you started playing pro tournaments at 16? Yeah, but I only got to top 100 when I was. Uh, and then at 17, you made some moves. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, made finals of Belgian indoors, lost to Vitas Gerolaitis uh, a couple of months before that. And then. Uh, yeah, I won a couple of matches here and there. But, and then, Ro but Rome, Rome you, sem Rome you semied, you lose to Gomez. Then we go to Paris on Saturday night. Flew, we, flew. No, 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 we drove, we drove. My coach drove a little uh, Fiat, uh, Fiat, uh, the smallest Fiat rental car possible. So we packed the back seat full of uh, suitcases and I slept on top of them. He drove the whole way through and we get to Paris in the morning. Sunday morning, uh, about eight o'clock, we check into the hotel, and obviously I need to go and hit some balls, so we called the- What hotel? Uh, Sofitel, Porte de Sèvres, which is no longer a hotel, very close to uh, Roland Garros. That's the Sofitel that Borg stayed at, I believe. Maybe, yeah, we used to call it Sophie Steel in those days, because they, they stole everything we had. They stole the room. There was a gang in there that took <laughs> the Sony Walkmans that we had and, and whatever, so we got there, and uh, my coach calls the club because I didn't speak much English. I was too shy. And uh, we asked, he asked for practice court. And they said, you're signed up with Jimmy Connors on center court at 11 o'clock. So I've never met Jimmy Connors in my life. And he was a big hero of mine because he was the opposite of Bjorn Borg. Uh, and Ilina Stasi was another hero of mine because he's the opposite of Bjorn Borg. But that's really just outwards. Inwards, Bjorn Borg was more than a hero. He was God to us. So I play, I started, and I don't know why Jimmy wanted to play with me, maybe because Bjorn didn't play the French Open in 1982, so he might have want to play, might want to play with another Swede who plays like Bjorn, just not as good. So we start hitting and we start playing some points and then uh, I'm beating. Hold on, you know, you, you, hold on a second, so you get up in the morning, you, you get in yeah. tournament transportation, you get your credential, you get out to, it, it was, it's called Court Chatrier, that's but right. then it was Court Central. Just believe. Court Central, that's right. So you go to Court Central, I mean, does Jimmy Connors even say hello? Yeah, of course. We did he was cool. Hand, yeah. He was yeah, cool. Yeah, he was very cool. Yeah, okay. he was very cool. Uh, he was very cool because he wanted to practice with a, with a junior. You know, to me that was unbelievable. Um, so we had unbelievable hitting, hitting for 45 minutes down the middle, um, waiting for him to go and get a drink and towel off because the older guy sets the tone, always has, always should. Um, and uh, we start playing games and I'm beating him. And in the changeover, when we walk by, one another, He's call, he calls me a name that I couldn't even repeat on, on your um, sacred podcast. <laughs> so I'm like, wait, oh my wait, God. Wait, he called you a... He called me something that I can't say. So he says, you, whatever. And uh, it's like, wow, did you hear that? I said to my coach. And he said, yes, I heard what he said. Don't worry about it. I'm like, what do you mean don't worry about it? That's Jimmy Connors. My hero is calling me that. And what happens? He beats me. Because obviously, how many people were watching? Two. My coach and uh, somebody, maybe his coach or friends of him. Jimmy's bodyguard, so, His bodyguard, yeah. so three. <laughs> so I realized, okay, this is practice. No one cares except Jimmy. He doesn't want to lose, so he beats me. So I'm like, okay, I learned two lessons within 24 hours that took me from being a junior to man in the tennis world. Yo, and by the way, for our listeners, there's one thing that is certain, that what goes on in practice during those weeks at tournaments 
counts. <laughs> well, it stays in practice. It's, it's, but, it, but, it, but it counts. Of course, like, everything counts. When guys are playing well on the practice courts and playing, you hear about it. Yeah, you do. You hear about it in the locker room. You hear about it in the players' lounge. Yeah, sure, you hear it. Yeah. But at the same time, you, you learn how the guys react and stuff. So um, <clears throat> never practice with Jimmy again. <laughs> never? No, not on tour. No, no, never. I was never asked again. Do you think that beating him impacted that? That he doesn't want well, to. Well, I, I didn't beat him. I was was beating Sorry. him. Then he beat me at the end of practice. He he won the practice match. No, I think he just wanted to check out and see what kind of player I was. But then I so then the French Open starts. So now I'm, you know, I play on court literally court 11 first round, 10 second round. Go through the players. Who oh, you play? I don't remember. You can't remember? No, I don't. I play, yeah, I remember I played Casio Mota, Brazilian second round. Um, I think I played uh, Alejandro. Cortez, I think. I think it's Colombian first round. Um, I played Fernando Luna, Spanish guy, on court one, third round. Best match I've played in my life up to that point. And he was, I don't know, he was seated. How were you feeling? Were you, you, were you, just, were you just working through the tournament? You... I was just not missing. I wasn't really feeling any, anything. At, I, I just knew that. You just weren't missing. I'm not losing to you, basically. You weren't missing. I'm not missing, and if you can't hit me, hit me off the court, then I'm not losing to you, because I'm not missing, and you're gonna do more than that. That was, that was the end of my confidence, which obviously is pretty high, but that's how you play the juniors. And were your courts improving, or you were still yeah, way so out? In <laughs> 11, 10, court one, then fourth round, I played Ivan Lendl, and um, I only seen Lendl play uh, live the year before when he lost to Borg in the finals uh, in five sets. And um, uh, I have no chance of beating Ivan Lendl, obviously. But uh, somehow I got into his head, I think. Maybe he got physically tired, I don't know. But I th felt like he let go at some point in the five set match and, and I beat Lendl. Or he beat himself, which is what I tell him when I see him. I couldn't beat anyone. They, I made them beat themselves because I didn't have much power. No power, don't miss, run forever. That's a bit like the basic, basics of my game in, in those days. Quarters. Quarters, I beat, beat, beat Askerolaitis, who in the last four matches, there was the only match where I felt that I could beat him because I nearly beat him indoors in Brussels in the Belgian indoors a couple months before. Um, and I felt on a clay court, uh, if he played the same way, I felt like if, if you're coming in, I can most probably pass you. And so I felt like that was a match that I could potentially physically win. Semis. In semis, I played Jose Luis Clerc, uh, who is, so Lendl is maybe three in the world, Vidas is five or six, Clerc is three or four, Vilas is two maybe, I don't know. I think Connors was one or McEnroe was one in those days. And uh, Clerc was, um, yeah, after beating Lendl Gerolaitis, yeah, I have a chance against Clark, I guess. I just no, were you like, the same thing. were you eating steaks every night? Were you having- No, that you, was Borg. <laughs> you weren't doing any of that? No, no, we ate pasta. Pasta until you basically couldn't take it. You ate macaroni. Basically macaroni and uh, tomato sauce or- Carbo load. Carbo load, not much protein, but I mean, the, the, the nutri nutritional uh, different. knowledge back then was zero. So. And now uh, you get to the final. So the finals, I'm, uh, play, I play Guillermo Vilas. Um, I'm thinking to hopefully win a couple of games in each set, because I lost to him in Madrid a month before the French on the clay, and I had no chance at all. So 
Yeah, my tournament was basically over after winning the semis. The final was more showing up, trying to fight and win a couple of games in each set. There's no chance to beat Vilas in those days. And he, I don't know, I won a game in the first set, won six. Second set, we get one all, two all, three all, four. Wow, four all, a minute. And then we get to a tiebreaker. He has a set point. He misses by maybe, maybe an inch long in the middle of the court, deep at me, no chance of me doing anything. And he then he most probably hits a forehand that I can't get to. So then he leads two sets to love, but he missed it. And um, I don't know, I won the second set. And then I early in the third, I was like, wow, he's choking. Like he's not doing anything. And I win the third six love. And I don't know what happened. Did he get tired? He get well, tight. I get tight and tired. I think th those two come together. I remember him changing his socks in a changeover. And in those days, I wasn't sweating very much, and I, I only brought two shirts on the court, and I would never change shirts on the court unless something drastically went wrong. So I was changing sweatbands, and he was changing his socks. I'm like, wow, this guy's sweating, and that sweating to me in those days, being uneducated in tennis, professional tennis, meant being tired. So I'm like, wow, he's sweating a lot. Your he confidence knows. lifted. I thought I could just stay there doing the, do the same thing, and he wasn't doing much by then in the terms of tactics, in terms of execution. And I, I was the one at, towards that part of the match, sort of the middle or second half, that I was the one trying to do something, create something. But it took 20 shots before I got the ball that I wanted to get, which usually was a shorter ball onto my two-handed backhand and then was either go to his backhand down the line because he's lefty and come to the net or go cross-court hard to his forehand and then hopefully get that next ball where I can come to the net on his backhand. I mean, I didn't come to the net often, but after 30 shots in those days, <laughs> even I felt like it was necessary. And um, he was having arguments with Jan Tyriak, his coach at the time. He was screaming at Jan. They were screaming back and forth. Coaching wasn't allowed, but I didn't, <laughs> didn't sound like coaching to me. So I don't know, same thing as the other matches a little bit. I felt like they kind of folded those guys and they felt that they could win the French Open because Borg wasn't there. Because obviously Borg dominated the French Open for six out of eight years. He lost a couple of times, but he, he won it easily. And all those guys couldn't win it when he was there. Milas had won once, but Borg didn't play that year. So uh, I think they all choked personally, um, except Vidas, God bless Vidas, um, who's always with us, but um, I think Vidas came in with um, the idea that this, this is a close match, plays like Bjorn Borg, and Vidas Gerlaitis is and always will be uh, one of the absolute heroes of mine and um, of professional tennis, for sure. When you won that trophy, when you won that title, did your life change, and, and did you realize it? Were you, or were you just so young? I mean, you're 17 years old, man. Yeah, well, it didn't, it changed. Did you, did you buy a Ferrari? No, I didn't have a driver's license, remember? Oh my God. You have to be 18 in Sweden. Um, so it didn't really change off the court that much, I have to say, because there was obviously no social media and uh, very limited, uh, there's a couple, you know, three or four newspapers in Sweden. And internationally, I wasn't, um, I, don't, I have no idea what happened, because you don't get the feedback. In those days, you didn't get the feedback. So. Outside the court, didn't change much. I didn't feel there was a few more interview requests, obviously, here and there, but uh, it didn't seem to me like it changed to the point where it was a hassle. And what about your tennis? Did you, well, all, of a sudden, did you all of a sudden think you were the baddest man on the planet? No, or what? No. 
no. No. No, I thought I could play well on clay against those guys, and my, that was my limitations. Uh, I went to Wimbledon afterwards. I made the third round, I think. Fourth, no, I made fourth round, actually, which was unbelievable. I played in the Wimbledon center court in my opening round against Heinz Guntart and served in volley the whole time, uh, first and second serve. And I was like, wow, this is working. He was top 30, and I won in three, in four sets. So, But that doesn't mean it feel like you belong in the top of the game. It, that happened only when I lost to John McEnroe uh, the week after Wimbledon in 1982 in uh, Davis Cup in St. Louis. Well, you played in, well, hold on a second. That's, yeah. the, that's, the, that's the greatest Davis Cup match there ever was. You played a six-hour match. That's right, yeah. Yeah. That's a famous match. It became a very famous match, yeah. yeah. I think it's actually still famous, I think. Yeah. My man, that's still famous. Yeah, it's still famous, yeah. But you took, the, that, you took a loss in that match. Took a loss. I beat Elio Telcher in the first round. For our day. listeners, the, one of the greatest matches there ever was was that 82 Davis Cup. It, it was a final? Quarterfinals. It was a quarter. It was Sweden versus the United States. St. Louis. And Mott's played John McEnroe in a match that went on for six hours. It went on for six hours and um, six hours and 37 minutes. But we took a 15 minute break after the third set in those days. And um, he was up two sets to love, something like six, one, six, four, upper break in the third. Match could have been over in two hours. And then I win this third set, no tiebreakers in those days. I win the third set 17, 15 in two hours and 50-something minutes. My man, you are a vicious competitor. Well, I just, again, maybe, I'm not sure. Um, you just play tennis to not lose, basically. So that's what you do. That's what you always do. Uh, and um, and he won. In the end, he beat me, but... Let's hold on, 17-15, you come out of that set. Yeah, I win, this, I win the fourth, maybe 6-3, 6-4. I, mean, I mean, were your feet blistering? Were you, I mean, <laughs> no. none of that. No, you practice four hours a day in those days. So playing six hours is not. Plus, when you're playing six hours, you'd sit down and change over. So six hours is nothing. Were you looking at McEnroe just being like, man? No, he's an animal. Animal. Yeah, he's an people, animal. People don't understand because he looks a little doughy. If you, if you run the tape back, he doesn't look fit, but he was an animal. Yeah, he played a lot of tennis. He played a lot of tennis because he played singles and doubles, and he got to four or five singles matches and four or five doubles matches every week. And he was fitter oh. than people thought. Tennis fit, you know, reminds me a little bit of, of what, what we see with Roger Federer. You know, he, and he says it himself, Federer, I'm tennis fit. So you, hold on, so, so the fourth set you went in, in yeah. a, like one break, and what happened in the fifth set? It's just we, we stayed level through the, through the set, and again, I, I don't know, I don't, my memory for scores is not great, I just know that it was <laughs> Seems one pretty service good to break. Me. Yeah. One service break, and it's, so it's either, Six four seven five eight six. It wasn't nine seven, and um, that's it. I lost, but I went away thinking that wow, McEnroe, I can play against John McEnroe on a fast indoor court. That gave me the most confidence. That gave me more confidence than winning the French Open. But the combination of winning a Slam and then pushing John to to five sets over that many hours, um, that just took me. My man. To the next level, in my mind, but it didn't change my, my results much on other surfaces. You, I still didn't do well on the other surfaces. But you won seven slams in six years, man. Yeah, seven years. And, one, one, one per year on average, yeah. But your career, when I look at it, reminds me of the documentary on, on Netflix 
about the band the Eagles. Mm -hmm. Like they went right to the sun. Yeah. And then psh, just sort of got too close to the sun. They got too close you to the sun. Up. You and they burned up. That's I mean, right. man. Yeah. You if you look at it, your career is incredible. You barely lost a, you barely lost any tennis matches for 6 7 years. Well, yeah. That, I mean, most most top players, I think, have a span when they're winning more than they're losing, I guess. But I kept playing. I, I mean, the first two years on tour, 80 and 81, most of 82 was uh, mostly losses. Uh, 89, 90, 91, 94, 95, 96, mostly losses, because I was still playing. I just took a couple years off. I didn't play any matches for two years, Yeah, in starting 91 in, Ju in June, then I quit for two years. You burned out. I had a knee. I got a knee injury. Had surgery, and then, yeah, I was uh, married for a couple of years and lived outside of New York City. Had a lot of good friends, and I don't know. I've been number one in the world. Made a little bit of money, and very interested in uh, playing music. Very interested in improving my golf game. Very interested in being with my wife, still my wife, and uh, just being a normal person. You know. You can't be both. You can't well, do both. Well, you can, apparently, because I think Roger Federer is doing a pretty good job at it. But, but it's hard. So it's tough to have that winning, winning uh, instinct where the world uh, is, uh, revolves around you only. And if you don't think that, then you are not going to make the right choices on, on big points, because the choices in tennis tactically are not made with your brain. They're made with your heart. You have to feel the situation. You have to go with it. So it's an instinctive tactical choice you make rather than a, than a statistical. And once that's gone, then you can still be good and win matches and you know, beat Boris Becker in 1990 in the quarterfinals of the Australian Open, or 1991, can't remember. Um, but you can't, in the long run, win big matches because you don't feel it. Any regrets? No, no regrets. I mean, I'm, mistakes, yes. <laughs> Many mistakes. We'll along save. The way. We'll save that for another episode. Man, man, you had an incredible career. Thank you. Let's move into our fourth set. We call this the ten ball scramble. We go quick. Okay. I say it, and you just come say what's in your mind. All right. Favorite tournament. Roland Garros. Favorite city. Melbourne. Favorite player growing up. Bjorn Borg. Favorite player now? Roger Rafa. Connors. Best fighter I ever played against. Mac. Most incredibly gifted tennis player, technically and tactically, I've ever faced. Lendl. Machine. Vetus. Um, connoisseur of life. Most underrated player of your generation. Miroslav Mechir. Most overrated player of your generation. I can't really answer you that. You won't answer it. Um, most underrated player now. That's a tough one. I am not sure. I could not tell you because there's such a dominance that, and they're not underrated or overrated. Favorite forehand. Roger Federer. Favorite backhand? Stan Wawrinka. Favorite serve? I would say John Isner. Not McEnroe, not Sampras? No. no. John Isner? I like John Isner's technique, not because he's 6'10", 
Fa he went great serve at six. Favorite volleys? Stefan Edberg. Let's move into our fifth set. We call this the king of the court. Okay. If you were the king of tennis and you could just do whatever you wanted, what would you do? To the benefit of the tennis. Okay, I'm gonna take, first I'm gonna take John McEnroe's advice of, of eliminate the warm-up. No warm-up. Just like in boxing. You go and you don't hit each other a couple times in boxing and then Bell stop. rings. Well, you've been warming up in the locker room. You've warmed up on the practice court, so you're ready. Kill so the warm-up, next. Kill the warm-up. Uh, play the let court in, on the serve. Uh, yes, I know there's gonna be some tricky let courts that are gonna pop up, and, but play the let courts 100% for sure. You like that college rule. That's a college rule. You like that? Rule. I like the with well, the re I don't like the reason why it's a college rule because I think guys were were saying it's let even though it wasn't. But I think it's why why not take Play away the, the let. let? Yeah, I think it'd be more dramatic. Tiebreaker at six all, first to seven in all slams. Um, make surfaces more different so that we get to see Novak Djokovic and Rafa Nadal and Roger Federer actually serve and volley uh, on the faster courts like at Wimbledon. Um, and I think that you'll see more new faces winning more tournaments. I love the dominance, but something is skewed when you have the three greatest players of all time playing at the same time. They're skewed because they're phenomenal, but the conditions also favor um, somebody who is slightly better than everybody else, and I think that's unfair for the game of tennis and the contrast of style that we love. My man former world number one Hall of Famer, our first Swede that we've had on the show. Uh, Mats Volander, thank you very, very much. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. You are released. Have a <laughs> great rest of your weekend. Thank you, Craig. Thank you to everyone for listening. If you want to help support Under Review and along the way get to hit some balls with pros like Mots in the Invesco series, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash underreviewtennis. The clinics are a lot of fun, and unlike V-Lander on wheels, it's okay to giggle. Again, our Patreon page can be found at patreon.com slash underreviewtennis. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash underreviewtennis. Huge thanks to Mats Vilander. Thank you to all the folks at the Hotel Viking and the Tennis Hall of Fame. And thank you to Zach Gallen and the folks at Inside Out Sports and Entertainment for hosting us. Thank you to our Patreon supporter, Timothy McLaughlin. I'm looking forward to hitting some balls with you soon. That's going to be a blast. Your support is incredibly appreciated. Thank you to all for listening. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe, rate, and review us. And tell your friends. We can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. We also love hearing from you. So if you have a topic you want explored or a person you want to hear from, please let us know. Our email is info at underreviewtennis.com. At UR with CS is our Twitter handle. Underreview Tennis is our Instagram and Facebook. Our producer is Scott Tuft, and our music is by Brian Senti. Jason Binnick did our mix. We'll be back next time with more of the most interesting voices in the sport. Until then, I'm Craig Shapiro, and you are released. <laughs>